entitled this morning's uh, message, The Apostle John's Contrast of the Children of God and the Children of the Devil. I've used an acronym to uh, describe them as we go through some of the passage. Uh, C-O-G would mean children of God. C-O-D would reference the children of the devil. And we'll get there shortly. Uh, I do need to remind us by way of review that last week we dealt very powerfully with having a hope that purifies us. And you recall in those first three verses of, of John chapter, 1 John chapter 3 that having a hope that purifies us involved perceiving the love of the Father in, with outward senses, with our eyes, seeing it, hearing it, understanding the love of the Father with our mind, experiencing the love of the Father in our life in some way and knowing it intuitively. Having a hope that purified us or purifies us in the present tense also involved knowing that the world will not know us, the world's system of thinking, the, the unsaved uh, communities of this world will not understand who the Christian is and why the Christian believes the things they do. Jesus said in John 15, 8, he said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Having a hope that purifies us means that the world isn't going to like us. And lastly, having a hope that purifies us, as we studied last week, involved trusting. Trusting in the day that we see Jesus. Because we know right now we are his child. We don't know what it'll be when he appears, what we shall be. But we know that when we see him, we shall be like him. When we see him as he is. And how that hope, man, just encourages us uh, to continue this walk that we are engaged in once the Lord has grabbed our lives and revealed himself to us. Interestingly enough, John turns a very sharp corner uh, in his letter here. And he's going to get into a, a contrast between the, the children of God and the children of the devil. But he begins first by um, giving a clear definition of sin. I draw your attention to verse 4. Of chapter 3, John writes and he says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. In preparation to him uh, bringing contrast to children of God, children of the devil, it follows logically that he would introduce or again bring the subject of sin into the, the discussion. And so he says that sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. I love what John R. 
Stott wrote, he said, we often fail in the battle against sin because we won't call it for what it is, lawlessness, an offense against the great lawmaker, God himself. Instead, we say things like, well, if I've done anything wrong, or if I've made mistakes, and so forth. Call it for what it is, sin and lawlessness. The first step towards holy living is to recognize the true nature and wickedness of sin. Very clearly put. And sin at its root is lawlessness. It is a disregard for God who is the lawmaker. And when you and I hear the word, you know, the lawmaker or God, you know, let's back up a little bit. First of all, God has universal laws that he put in place in preparation for his uh, love of wanting to have a creation in mankind. He put universal laws into, into place. Psalm uh, 147 verse 4 says uh, he counts the number of stars, and he calls them by name. I mean, God set this entire universe in place, spoke, and it was so, and knew that it needed to have an order. It needed to have laws that would govern it. On my way in this morning, about 5, 5.30 or so, I was able to stop at the party outlook, and the gate was closed, of course, but it was, there was, I don't know if you noticed, there was no moon tonight. And even though there was a bit of a cloud cover and there's, you know, that uh, city lights from Sacramento and Jackson area, it was dark enough that you could just see the expanse of the stars and know that God himself has placed laws in the creation of the universe itself. He's created laws for the physical world in which he would place mankind, i.e. this earth. One law, of course, that we're all very familiar with is gravity, the law of gravity. See how high you can jump right now. And we can't. We are limited because of a, of a physical law that God put in place because he's a God of order. And Order needs law in order for order to remain. Job tells us that God spoke to him finally at the end of, of his dialogue back and forth with God. Job was seeking to you know, justify himself and, and tell God that he was sinless, that he hadn't, you know, he hadn't uh, transgressed the way his friends were telling him. And then God decided to just kind of clear the subject and open it up and define to Job who Job is as it relates to who God is. And God says to him in Job 38.11, This far you may come, but no further, and here your proud waves must stop. God said to Job, where were you when I put that in place? Physical laws of this world in which we live. God didn't stop there, of course. He put moral laws in place. 
Yes, there are moral laws inbred into the human race. He gave us those laws as he created a people to carry those laws throughout a human history. We find them predominantly reduced down to their basic most powerful uh, expression in Exodus 20. We often know them as the Ten Commandments. But the first four deal with man's relationship with God. The last six deal with man's relationship with man. And there is a moral basis for how mankind is to deal with his fellow human being. Some of those moral laws, you shall not murder If there was no law, no moral law against murder, then there would be no inward conscience or consequence inwardly for it. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your brother and so forth. No, there are moral laws in which God says that if these moral laws are upheld, humankind flourishes. But he didn't stop there. Lastly, he put in place spiritual laws. And there are laws that flesh, there are spiritual laws that flesh themselves out in our daily lives. Where sin comes in, there's that need again for a spiritual law. Paul writing to the church in Galatia and to the Christians in that area, Galatians 6, 7, he said, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. It's a physical truth that has its greatest application in the spiritual realm. Whatever a man sows, whatever a person sows, that shall he reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. What are you sowing today? And so John deals, you know, clearly and immediately with the subject of sin before he gets into this contrast of the child of God and the child of the devil or the children of God and the children of the devil deals very abruptly with the subject of sin because John also knows that there's good news. (laughs) Verse 5 He tells us in verse 5, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. The good news of the gospel that Christ came to take upon himself the penalty for humankind's sin. To take it away. To remove the the eternal consequence for sin to the one who will place their faith in the 
perfect work of the perfect man and the perfect son of God. Paul to the Corinthians in Corinthians 15, he said, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and that he was buried and that he rose the third day according to the scripture. Yes, sin is lawlessness. Sin exists. Laws are in place to deal with it and the good news is that God the Father has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to deal with the sin issue in the human race. And then he, he moves now to this subject that encompasses most of chapter 3. He begins this discussion of the contrast. And in verse 6, he tells us, and we'll, work, we'll walk through some of these together, see how far we get this morning. In verse 6, he says, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now we know clearly that the, uh, we see the him is uh, capital, uppercase H, so it's a personal uh, pronoun. It's referring, of course, to Christ. John is referencing Jesus. And he says, whoever is, is abiding in Jesus does not sin. Now, it's impossible uh, to even begin to abide in Jesus unless one has been born again by the Spirit of God and has started a relationship with Jesus Christ that begins when one is born again by the Spirit. Are you born again this morning? I'm not asking you if you believe in God. I'm not even asking you if you believe that Jesus Christ was here. Even the demons believe and they tremble. I'm asking this morning, and those of you who may be watching at home, are you born again by the Spirit of God? Have you had a second birth in which you know that the Spirit of God has entered your life? Because that's where abiding begins. It can't start unless there's a new beginning. And if you have not, please don't leave this morning without allowing one of us, some of us, to pray with you. Abiding in Jesus means starting a relationship with him and remaining in relationship with him. Now, let's talk about the phrase, does not sin. I'm going to draw your eyes to a couple of words uh, a word used three times. If you will look to me with me to verse 7 at the word practice. Little children, let no one deceive you, he who practices. Look again at verse 9. Uh, whoever has been born of God does not sin. Look again at verse 10. Uh, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. What's needed to be explained and needed to understand uh, as we come to this subject matter that John, you know, opens up for us and unpacks is 
again, the appreciation of a simple tool like a lexicon or a Bible dictionary or something. And what you and I will find in the phrase in verse 6, uh, whoever abides in him does, does not sin. In the phrase in verse 7, he who practices, as I said in verse 9, does not sin. In verse 10, it, the root form of that phrase has to do with something that is taking place habitually and repeatedly, and there's no stop to it. If you're taking note this morning, note that because it's important. John is not saying that the moment someone comes to faith in Christ that they never sin again. Ho, ho. Not that anyone here would ever even think that. Because each of us knows how clearly and easily it is to miss the mark. Sin is a missing of the mark. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 uses this same word phrase when he talks about that which I don't want to do is what I practice. That which I do, I don't want to practice. I don't want to keep on doing repeatedly. So what John is saying is if someone is abiding in Jesus, they are not he, she, they. How's that for pronouns? Uh, are not going to remain in that sin repeatedly and habitually and at the same time abide in Jesus. That's clear. So the COG abides in him and does not practice sin, does not repeatedly, habitually stand, but whoever sins or practices sins or is habitually involved repeatedly in sin has neither seen, capital H, him, has never, neither seen Jesus with their spiritual eye nor known him in their, in their heart of hearts. They don't know who Jesus is. They haven't had an encounter with the resurrected and living Savior. children of God, children of the devil. Now, I think it's also appropriate, and we're not going to get very far this morning, I can tell, but I think it's also appropriate uh, to deal with these two phrases that John uses. I didn't I didn't create them. John used them in verse 10. He says, "In we read it, in this the children of God and the children of the devil. So, what's he talking about? My goodness. Are there really children of the devil running around? Are there really children of God running around? Can humans kind or the human race be reduced down to t 
two phrases Chew on that for a while. Remember Jesus said, if you're not for me, you are against me. When we think of the phrase, the children of God, we must remember, I stated last week, that every child has been created by God, but not every child is a child of God. Okay? So to be a child of God, there needs to be, as I stated just a moment ago, a birth. There needs to be a second birth. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Revelation tells us. So... The children of God are those who have been born again and have come to faith in Christ. Therefore, the children of the devil are are not running around with horns and a cape and a pitchfork and and they're easily distinguishable because they're just massively evil, although we have you know enough of that going on that you can notice that. But simply what John is saying is that the children of the devil are those who have not been born again and have not come to faith in Christ. And yes, humankind, the human race, the beloved soul of every individual can be... St- Synthesized down to two, according to John. There's no middle ground here. So I'll speak for me, I can't speak for you, but I will say that before I was born again, I was a child of the devil. Did I run around, you know, practicing witchcraft, trying to get everybody to worship the devil, wearing stuff that would make you... No. But was I not under the control of the Spirit of God and therefore able to claim the Father as my Father and His Son as my Lord and Savior and, and therefore my... The, the plans of my life and the direction of my life and the things that I were doing in my life were not, were, they were not directed and governed by the Spirit of God who dwells in me. I hope you're following me this morning. Because to some, that's a difficult palate. It's like, well, isn't mankind basically good? No. There are none good, not one. And probably the hardest time I'm going to have with that is we're getting ready to have a a great-grandchild born. And as we celebrate today, the Johnsons have had a brand new baby. New babies are just so beautiful. It's like they can do no wrong. Right? Little infant, beautiful as they are, 
they come into this world saying, me, me, me. And a parent has to immediately deal with the fact that it's no longer about them, them, them. Why? Because they're self, they're trying to survive. Therefore, they are self-focused. And as beautiful as they are, they are not yet governed. Hold on, I know probably going to wrestle this one through for a week now. Are you saying my baby? What I'm saying is that they are not yet governed by the spirit of the living God. I don't care if they've been doused and sprinkled and prayed over or whatever. They are not yet governed by the spirit of the living God in them. Boy, you guys are quiet. So, there are two categories in society, totally. The children of God and the children of the devil. And for the next week or so, because we won't get to the whole thing, we're going to look at John's contrast of them. That's all we're going to do. We're going to look at what John says uh, about each category. Because he says, the children of God abide in Christ. And because they abide in Christ, they do not habitually, repeatedly enter into sin. They experience a deliverance, a freedom. Doesn't mean they don't ever wrestle again. Doesn't mean that they don't ever sin again. Doesn't mean that there isn't ever a missing of the mark in their life again. But the habitual, repeated, back to, back to, under the power of sin is broken by the resurrection power of the Savior of God. So we'll take 7 and 8 and then we'll close. We come now to 7 and 8, which I referenced the word practice. Let's read it. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices, what does practice mean? Habitually repeats. He who practices righteousness is righteous. Oh, there's a, there's a positive application of it. He who habitually repeats righteousness. What is righteousness? Well, the Bible is clear that there are none good, no, not one. Uh, Isaiah's word to uh, to mankind is that all of the righteousnesses of mankind are like a filthy rag. All of the good works, uh, even in the name of God, feeding countless hungry, clothing countless children, the building of churches, 
the standing on the street corner for hours and hours declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly from Scripture, sending missionaries into the world, being a missionary going into the world, righteous acts, yes. But let's stay clear about whether or not they are righteousness. Isaiah tells us that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So what is righteousness then? There's only one who is righteous, and that is Christ Jesus. And so the righteousness that John is talking about here is the person and the work of Jesus Christ evident in us and through us in our life. Therefore, the things that we do that are prompted by his indwelling become righteousness in the eyes of the Father because it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. It is Christ who is working through us, not us what we're doing. Another little step up in our, you know, our understanding of the true Christian faith, of a biblical Christianity. And John says that everyone who practices habitually seeks uh, righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Oh my goodness. So In that, we can be greatly comforted in our promptings of serving the Lord in whatever way that is. Some of you here this morning, uh, you may never see them, you know, visibly or in front, some front ministry, but they are like the pillar of prayer warriors of this church. There are some that do many kind of visible and known things. And whatever it is that God calls a man or a woman to, uh, he certainly calls each of us to engage in serving him in a local body of believers in which our lives and a a portion of our, uh, there's a sacrifice of our time, our talent, our energy in which we recognize that the body of Christ is benefited when I offer myself in this way or that way uh, to the Lord to serve the Lord's people. That's recognized as righteousness, Christ in us. And it says that that righteousness is a righteousness just as he is righteous. But he who sins, verse 8, again this practice, is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And for this purpose, the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. So he who sins, and again the grammatical uh, 
the necessity of knowing the grammar there is very important because it is, again, a reference to not a one-time missing or a five-time missing or however many times in life you might miss the mark and I miss the mark, we miss the mark, but rather a repeated habitual involvement in a area of sin is of the devil. In other words, his life, his, her life is being governed not by the spirit of God, but by the spirit of God's adversary. Because Satan himself has sinned from the beginning, right? What was his sin? Satan's sin, the devil's sin, was that he at one time was an anointed cherub. The Bible tells us that he was uh, like a ruler of angels and he began to want to be like God and to lift himself up as God and to declare that one day he will be like the Most High. Pride entered his heart. And so his first act as a fallen angel was to come down and whisper the lie into the ear of Eve. And yet God in his amazing grace even allowing that complete history to take place from creation, the fall of mankind, the carrying of the scriptures throughout human history all the way to the advent of the Son of God so that you and I can look backwards in history and realize right now this morning that the Father gave the Son in order to destroy the works of the devil. And as we close this morning, I close with this this somewhat contrary thought or, you know, dichotomy is, well, well, if God did that to destroy the works of the devil then why is there so much evil still in the world? Why is there so much pain and suffering and, and obviously things that a loving God must have his heart broken over? Why, if he sent his son to destroy all that? Answer, because he also wants to be loved by choice. He wants your decision to receive the forgiveness of Christ and to know the love of the Father to be a choice that you make and is not made for you. And that when you make that choice, an amazing thing happens. God says, wonderful. Enter in my rest we are witnesses to a world that has chosen to reject the one true God 
And that's why we live still in a time with such suffering and pain and misery. But a day is coming, and I don't think it's very far off. A day is coming when he will call his church home and begin a process in which will inevitably bring us to a thousand years of his reign on earth and then a new heaven and a new earth to exist. How do we, how do we navigate in the meantime? Abide in Christ. Well, we'll stop there and we'll pick it up next week in verse 9. Will you join me as we pray? Thank you, Lord, for your word, for the ministry of your spirit that causes your word to be alive in our hearts today. Knowing that your word is, is alive and is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit and of the joints and of the marrow, Lord. How grateful we are today that you've made it clear. We can know where we stand. We don't have to be confused. We don't have to wonder. And for every one of us this hour that has chosen receive your forgiveness we say thank you Lord we say thank you and we pray for our loved ones we pray for those who have yet to bend their knee and seek the forgiveness of God thank you for the forgiveness of our sin Lord thank you for your patience with us May we in this week ahead practice righteousness. May it take place by your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.